It's good to be here and thankful for all that have made it and uh, appreciate uh, the attendance. And hopefully this morning I can say something that is a benefit to the congregation here and, um, and in line with what God teaches us as well, primarily. So um, we're going to be uh, talking about and teaching out of the book of Job today, kind of jumping between a few uh, chapters and drawing out some points um, in this book. So most of us know the story of Job and how God allowed Satan to afflict Job in many ways. And uh, we'll go over some of those today. And when we read the book of Job, I have always wondered uh, and had a question of why. Why would God allow this? Why would God allow somebody to go through these things, to go through this or through that and the things that Job went through? And the question that I want uh, us to answer here is when we think about our life right now or in the past or whatever we may come upon uh, maybe a long time ago is why. And when we think about those questions, you know, God, why? Why are you allowing this in my life? Why am I suffering so much pain or going through this or that or whatever it may be? We're going to be uh, starting in Job chapter 3. Uh, so we're not going to be going through Job 1 and 2. Uh, and here's the kind of the setup up to Job chapter 3. Uh, in the beginning of Job 1, Job had everything that he could ever want to desire. Uh, he had a wife, a house uh, full of children, uh, wealth, possessions, good health. Um, and he was blameless before God. He feared God. He did good and he turned away from evil. evil and then in an instant, all of his possessions were stripped away from him. He had everything taken away from him. And Job 1 tells us uh, kind of waves after waves of things start happening to him, one after the other. And then all ten of Job's children die instantly, we could read. In Job 2, he loses his good health. Physically, he is, he is miserable and in pain, and his wife is telling him to curse God and die. Yet after all of that, at the end of Job 1 and 2, he is still worshiping God. Job 1 says... That when all this happened to him, to his possessions and all his children, it says there in Job 1 in verse 20 through 22, it says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with any wrong. So these are really kind of the, uh, and then also too, at the end of Job chapter 2, it says in verse 10 through 11, it says, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. And this is his, his, uh, him talking to his wife. Shall we, we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. And those are two of the most uh, Remarkable statements that I can read, you know, about faith in the Bible. Those statements are of trust in and worship of God in the middle of unimaginable tragedy and loss and pain. But this was just the beginning of what Job was going to be experiencing. Um, it's one thing, you know, to get a sudden tragedy happen in your life, something that happens that you don't expect. But Job experienced a prolonged, uh, drawn out uh, experience of all this stuff happening to him. 
You know, it's one thing to have sudden pain. It's one thing to have prolonged pain and suffering. Two totally different things. And that's what uh, begins to happen in Job 3. And as we see Job as a blameless, upright man who is completely committed to God, he's now struggling with uh, questions of why God is letting this happen to him. Job was wrestling with the question of God, why? Why is this happening? And he's wrestling, he's even in a trash heap while dealing with these, uh, these things in his life. Uh, then before long, some of his friends showed up, which is Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And Job initially speaks in Job 3, and kind of a cycle begins with he and his friends conversing back and forth. First Eliphaz speaks, then Job responds. Then Bildad speaks, then Job responds. Zophar speaks, then Job responds. And they do this in a rotation of three times. And then um, the third time, one of the friends uh, drops out. And then a new guy, new friend comes in. And his name is uh, Elihu. So the counsel of these friends is not very helpful at all. And as we read through the book of Job, we need to remember that sometimes because some things are happening in the Bible doesn't mean that we take those specific things as examples to lean on. This is a clear example of not good counsel to take from, Job, from Job's friends. Um, what, a lot of what these guys are saying is true at different points, but uh, the way they apply that truth is often unhelpful or their timing or tone in sharing these truths is unhelpful. And some of these things that they say just really aren't true. And at the core of their unhelpful counsel is an instance that Job has done something, basically Job has done something to deserve all this. Job, you've done something wrong. You deserve this, this pain. If something bad, ha something bad happens to you, you deserve it. If something good happens to you, then you deserve it. And that is terrible theology. That's a terrible way to look at the book, of, at the Bible. However, in the middle of all of these conversations between Job and, and uh, his friends, we do find some, uh, really some anchors to ground that Job was relying on, anchors that Job had in order to move through these um, things that were happening to him. And Job 3 is exactly the place that we want to start um, because of how many times Job asked the question of why. And I want to read the whole chapter of uh, Job 3. Um, and I, well, as we read through it, notice how many times Job asked the question of why. We'll start there in verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And this is him actually talking about him being born. And Job spoke and said, May the day perish on which I was born, and the night in which it was said a male child is conceived. May that, that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor the light shine upon it. May darkness and the shadow of death claim it. May a cloud settle on it. May the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, may darkness seize it. May it not rejoice among the days of the year. May it not come into the number of the months. Oh, may it that night be barren. May no joyful shout come on into it. May those curse it. Who curse the day, those who are, who are ready to arouse Leviathan. May the stars of its morning be dark. May it look for light but have none, and not see the dawning of the day, because it did not shut up the doors of my mother's womb, 
nor hide sorrow from my eyes. Why did I, I did not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breast that I should nurse? For now I would have lain still and been quiet. I would have been asleep, then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of earth, the earth who built runes for themselves or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver or why, has, or why was I not hidden like a stillborn child, like infants who never saw light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners rest together. They do not hear the voice of the oppressor. The small and the great are there, and the servant is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter of soul? Who long for death, but it does not come, and search for it more than hidden treasures? Who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave? Why is light given to a man who is, whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes before I eat, and my groanings pour out like water. For the thing I greatly feared has come upon me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. I am not at ease, nor I am quiet. I have no rest. For trouble comes. That's some heavy stuff. That's some. That's a guy who just really is saying, "Why in the world was I even born to experience this?" Six times in this chapter, Job asks, "Why?" Why is the question that we uh, is the most fundamental of all. And like we said, why was I even born? Is kind of his why? Why God? Why did you even make me? And he's coming before God. A faithful man hurting and not understanding and asking, why is he even here? And that's a clear implication of Job thinking, I don't want to be here. I don't want to live. And he's actually longing for his own death. Sad state. So how in the world with Job, with all these problems and questions and trials, how in the world did he hold on to his faith in God? And in the chapters that follow, I want to show, uh, you know, this is kind of an honest faith that Job really had. You know, it, he had nothing left but to hold on to God. That's all he had. And these anchors that we're going to go over um, that Job was relying on, you know, it's good for, it was good for him and it is also good for us today. So anchor number one that we want to re remember that, remember that God is all wise. That's what Job was holding on to. I want to jump ahead to uh, Job 28 um, because this is kind of where um, it kind of contains a scene of, a, uh, of Job's journey, the kind of the climax. And when we get to chapter 8, God, is, God speaks to Job. Um, and in the middle of the book here, uh, the chapter there, uh, this, this chapter is kind of referred to as um, wisdom literature. You kind of you kind of see some stuff that that you can see in Proverbs going through this chapter. Kind of the same wording. And um, so as Job is wrestling with the question why, listen to what he said, starts saying here in Job twenty eight verse twelve, and we'll read through uh, verse twenty eight. But where can wisdom be found, and where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor it is found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. And the sea says, it is not with me. 
It cannot be purchased for gold, nor can silver be weighed for its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in the precious onyx or sapphire. Neither gold nor crystal can equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewelry of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or quartz, for the price of wisdom is above rubies. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued, valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say we have heard a report about it with our ears. God understands its way and he knows its place. For he took the ends of the earth, for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees under the whole heavens. To establish a weight for the wind and apportion the water by measure when he made a law for the rain and a path for the thunderbolt. Then he saw wisdom and declared it. He prepared it, indeed, he searched it out. And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. That's so much like what we see in, you know, in the book of Proverbs, kind of the wisdom uh, literature that we see there. And Job is searching for wisdom and understanding, and he's frustrated because God has it and he doesn't. God, Job does not understand why he's going through these things, but he knows God does. He knows God does. And so when we get to uh, verse 23 of this chapter, we see something that's uh, key for us to understand when we have these why questions. You know, I want to show uh, us um, basically three ingredients that are necessary for wisdom. So follow me on this as we go through these. Uh, number one, wisdom involves knowledge. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. So to be wise is to have knowledge. The second ingredient, wisdom involves perspective. Verse 24, for, for he, which is God, looks to the ends of the earth and sees under the whole heavens. Wisdom is the ability to perceive. It's to know and to perceive. Then third, wisdom involves experience. Uh, Job starts talking about how God has created everything. And it says there, uh, he, create, he gave uh, to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure. He made a decree for rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder. God made everything himself, and he's the one who saw wisdom. He declared wisdom. He established wisdom. And he searched it out, and God formed wisdom from the beginning. So with these three ingredients uh, pulled from these uh, verses, knowledge, perspective, and experience, I want us to think on God's limitless wisdom. So, uh, I'm sorry, we'll think, we'll, we'll think about our limited wisdom first, and then we'll get to God's limitless wisdom. So we lack all these things as humans. Okay, We lack knowledge, we lack perspective, uh, we lack experience. We lack knowledge, you know, how often do we make... Uh, or act because, or make an unwise decision because of, we just don't know everything. You know, how many times have we found ourselves saying, you know, if I would have known that, I would have done this. If I'd want to know, know this, I would have made, uh, if I would know there's construction in Bakersfield, I would have taken another route. So the knowledge produces wisdom. Likewise, we lack perspective. We don't see everything. We don't, we don't see everything clearly. Uh, our perspective is always, at best, limited. 
Okay, at worst, it's maybe jaded or distorted because of previous experiences in our life, our perspective on things. Um, sometimes it's even wrong. We never perceive all the factors at work in every situation or all the effects of a decision we might make. Or maybe we're just not able to see things from somebody else's point of view. Maybe somebody else has a point of view that we don't necessarily see all the way um, in, that, in that type of uh, instance. Third, we lack experience. We learn some things for, in the first time we you know, go through a situation knowing that the next time how to do it better than that. You know, the more we grow in experience, the more we grow in wisdom. But we're obviously limited in our experience. So we lack knowledge, perspective, and experience, which is why we find ourselves sometimes searching for understanding and wisdom. So God's limitless wisdom, uh, let's think about how he has perfect knowledge. Uh, number one, God knows everything, past, present, and future. He knows he has all the facts. He's got all the info. He knows everything. God never finds himself saying, I wish I would have known that. I would have done it differently. We don't see that ever happen. God has perfect knowledge of everything. Secondly, God has eternal perspective on everything at all times. In verse 24, it says, for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees under the whole heavens. So true wisdom that God has, it sees everything in a proper perspective. And God has eternal, proper, perfect perspective. God sees and understands how any one thing will affect every other thing, including every person at every time, through eternity. <laughs> that's a huge concept to grasp, but that's what God does and he knows and has that perspective. And then finally, God has infinite experience. He's always acted wisely in all that he has done. And he's the, actually the wisdom of uh, uh, author's wisdom. Wisdom's author, excuse me. God has infinite experience as the infinitely wise God. So during our questions, uh, the situations we go through, the, the pain we might suffer or the hurt we may be feeling or anything like that, why me, God? Why am I going through this? Why, why is somebody that is close to me, why is this happening to them? Um, I was thinking this morning, you know, what? have we ever thought about how God works not only in our lives, but maybe in somebody else's? You know, what if God is working in our lives in order to have an effect on somebody else's life? Maybe somebody's looking to us on how we react to something for them to learn on how to uh, uh, address that issue maybe that they're dealing with in their lives. You know, God's providence, which is the way that we work in our that he works in our lives, may not be just about us. It's not just about us all the time. Maybe it's about somebody else. Maybe we're going through this trial or whatever it may be in order to show somebody else how to deal with it. I remember, you know, Frank up here sometimes he would always talk about this subject and somebody would be asking you know, why me and Frank would say well why not you why not are you above everybody else to not go through this experience you know maybe God is doing that in our lives you know to refine the goal to make us better to get us through that situation whatever it may be and he's never going to give us something that we can't handle So we need to remember that we are not all wise, but God is. 
We lack so much knowledge and perspective and experience, but God lacks none of these things. And this is why in the middle of Job's questions of why, right in the middle of the book of Job, we have a central declaration that God is all wise. And as a result, God is trustworthy because God is all wise. And you and I honestly ask, how can we trust God when this or that happened to us or this happened to somebody else? We can trust God and we, uh, when we remember that his knowledge is perfect, that he knows all things, that he knows what is best in all things. And we can trust in God and remember that his perspective is eternal. When we remember that he sees so many things all at the same time, throughout eternity. We can trust God when we remember that he has infinite experience and that he has and is always and will and always will be and that in wisdom, his wisdom, he knows how to take an evil and suffering in, in a certain situation and turn it to good. The primary example of that is Jesus on the cross. Right? It's the story of Jesus, the perfect, innocent, and blameless Son of God, beaten and tortured, nailed to a cross to die. Why? Why would God allow His Son to go through that? Jesus was on the cross and said, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And that is to say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, in His humanity, in His suffering, was asking, Why? Why the cross? Why the suffering? Why the pain? Why the death? Why, God, are you letting this happen? And the answer is because God the Father, in his limitless wisdom, his perfect knowledge of every single, he has perfect knowledge of every single one of our sins. And in his internal perspective, he has designed a way for every one of us who obeys the gospel of Jesus and lives for him 2,000 later from that event, 2,000 years later from that event, and that's what we count our time by, is that event, right around that time, to be here today and to be saved from our sins. God's eternal perspective and His limitless wisdom. So we praise God that Jesus trusted God the Father in that situation to endure the cross. The most evil act in history, the crucifixion of a blameless Son of God, ushered in the most wonderful reality in all of history, and that is salvation for every person from every nation who follows the gospel. God is infinitely wise, and we are not. So uh, we have all of our questions about why. We must remember that God is all wise. Uh, it honors and glorifies God when we trust in Him, even when we admittedly and honestly don't understand what He's doing. We may not understand what's going on. We may not want to know the reality of it, but we trust that God is doing what is best for us. So that leads us into our second anchor that we can rely on, and that is to hold fast to God as your hope. Back in Job 3, uh, the, the term of depth and despair, I think, is an appropriate description of Job's state of mind. Um, he's despairing of life itself. A number of times he talked about darkness, and this is a picture of despair. And it continues throughout the various responses that he has to his friends. For example, he had a response in Job 6, uh, verses 8 and 9. It says, Oh, that I might have my request, 
that God would grant me the thing that I long for, that it would please God to crush me, that he would lose his hand and cut me off. In Job 7, verse 16, it says, I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone, for my days are but a breath. Job 10, 20 through 22. Are my days not few? Cease. Leave me alone that I may take a little comfort before I go to the place from which I shall not return, to the land of darkness and the shadow of death, a land as dark as darkness itself, as the shadow of death, without any order where even the light is like darkness. Job 19, verses 13 through 22. He has removed my brothers far from me, and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have failed, and my close friends have forgotten me. Those who dwell in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I am an alien in their sight. I call my servant, but he gives no answer. I beg him with my mouth. So, Job uh, is in depth and despair, and, and he's, longing for, he's longing for hope in all this stuff that he's going through. And that's the kind of the challenge, right? It's what despair is. It's darkness with no sign of light. And Joseph, or Job hits rock bottom, uh, in a sense, in chapter 19. And we just read that. I got ahead of myself. And um, uh, beginning in verse 13, he says there, uh, as we read in verse 13, we'll keep, uh, you know, above all other things, um, we should be going through, you know, these, these things. You know, we're not above all these things. We'll continue reading in, in verse uh, 17 of chapter 19. I apologize. I got a little bit out of order there. It says, My breath is offensive to my wife, and I am repulsive to the children of my own blood. Even young children despise me. I arise and they speak against me. All of my close friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. My bone clings to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, have pity on me. O oh, you, my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does and are not satisfied with my flesh? Seemingly, basically, no hope that, that he had. And it's at this point in, in Job's life where we read you know, one of the most remarkable and thrilling uh, triumphant parts in this book. In the very next sentence, in the very next verse, in verse 23, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. And I want us to feel the intensity there, that they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and led forever. And then in verse 25 and through 27 says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last upon the earth. And after my skin is destroyed... This I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Could you imagine going through this stuff that he did, and then being able to speak these words, still have that faith and trust in God? Really a remarkable man. And he says... I know. Somebody else doesn't know. I know that my Redeemer lives. It's my Redeemer. 
mine. Now, that, just because he had those questions, you know, that, that he had that faith, it doesn't mean that he still didn't have those questions of why things were happening. It's like, not like all of a sudden they've all been answered. And quite the opposite. You know, Job doesn't seem to have any of his questions after. He doesn't know why, but he knows who. Job understands who is the creator, who gives all life, who he can rely on, no matter what position he is in. A redeemer, a vindicator. And this word is used in Ruth to describe the champion of the oppressed. It's used in Exodus to describe the deliverer of the captives. It's used in Proverbs to describe the defender of the weak. And, uh, you know, there's something after your skin is destroyed, he's saying here. There's something after the pain, after the heartache, after the sickness, after the grief. After my skin is destroyed, then in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. My eyes shall behold, yet and not another, how my heart yearns within me. So let's hold fast to God in hope. Do not turn away from God during our trials. Where else will we go? To whom shall we go? I think that's in John chapter 6. The disciples had nowhere else to go but to Jesus. Nobody else could give the life that Jesus was promising to them and to us. There was no other place. So when we hold fast to hope in him, you would behold him as our redeemer, our vindicator, defender, deliverer, provider, and our healer. He is the one who alone can make all things new in our life. We will see God. He is our hope. We'll see our hope one of these days. We'll see his face as we're told in Revelation. I think about uh, Darren. I know he's okay with me using this, but Darren's been blind most of his life, and he's going to see God's face. That's amazing to me. Beautiful. And so we long for that hope to see God one of these days. He will satisfy our souls forever. So Job's anchors. Remember that God is all wise. And hold fast to God as our hope. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.